0: Well, good, morning. good morning. It is good to be together, and it is good to have love feast to look forward to today as well, that we may fellowship together. Um, last week we had a little space from the Book of Mark. Today we're back into the Book of Mark. So if you guys have your Bibles with you, grab those. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles tucked into the back of the chairs. You can grab a Bible. Um, We've been studying the book of Mark for a number of weeks, kind of going chapter by chapter through this, looking at the stories that are present in the book of Mark. You know, Scripture is, uh, it's fun. It's full of adventures. And one of the things that we often do is we look at Scripture like it's a chore, Uh, we've been told if you've, if you've been raised in the church, you've been told since you were young, you gotta read your Bible, you gotta read your Bible, you gotta read your Bible. And so we look at it as this thing that we have to do, and it becomes sort of a chore. Um, if you've been in the church for your whole life and maybe you have some, some gray hairs, maybe the gray hairs outnumber the dark hairs at this point, um, perhaps you've been through the Bible a few times and now you kind of look at it like, well, I kinda, I did my duty. I, I read my Bible. I don't need to do that so much anymore. But the thing is, is we need to be in the word. We need to be in scripture. We need to be familiar with it. And so we're never really done with it. It's important for us to be in this thing. And so uh, sort of like a good TV show that we like, uh, when, a, when a TV show that's been off the air for a long time and we catch a rerun that comes on and we go, oh man, remember this show? I loved watching this show when it was on. And we, we get that sense of like, I'm going to sit down and catch this thing. Or uh, whether it's an old movie, a movie that we grew up watching and we really enjoyed. We should feel that same sort of joy and love and affinity for scripture too. And so that's why we've been walking through this kind of chapter by chapter, talking about what these stories are, what these adventures mean. And sometimes the adventures are exactly what they appear to be. There's not really a whole lot of digging that we have to do. But every now and then, we come across a passage and we say, man, this whole thing seems sort of not at all what it seems. We have to scratch a bit deeper than what is on the surface here to understand what's going on. And so the book of Mark is a great place for us to start. It's the story of the life of Jesus. And um, we are past the middle point. We're getting closer and closer to his crucifixion here where we are in chapter 12. And, uh, and we are in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city where Jesus will be crucified. And that's where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 12. And so we are in Mark chapter 12. And if you notice up on the screens or if you picked up a bulletin and you look at the cover of the bulletin, you'll see this picture of all these pillars. And under the words Mark 12, it says, Inside Solomon's Colonnade. And that's most likely where Mark chapter 12 takes place. It's this place called Solomon's Colonnade, or another name for it is Solomon's Porch, okay? It's a part of the temple, and this is sort of what it looks like. Um, It's a place with these gigantic, beautiful pillars, and it was a, a common place for rabbis or teachers to teach, and they would walk through this part of the temple with their disciples or their crowds and they would, they would teach. Um, and so most of what we're gonna encounter today likely happened in the midst of these pillars. And so that's why I would call today Inside Solomon's Colonnade, Inside Solomon's Porch. These teachings happened there. And so you can kind of think in your mind's eye, this wasn't by a lake. This wasn't near a fig tree. This was as Jesus walked with a crowd of people between pillars in the temple. This was Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law popping in through a pillar and asking him a question and trying to start a little fight with him as disciples and crowds of people followed him as he walked and he taught, making his way through these pillars through the temple. Are you with me? Gives you a little bit of a picture of where we're at, okay? So, Mark chapter 12, we're going to start right at the beginning. Verse 1, we're going to read verses 1 to 12. Jesus is going to start by telling a parable, okay? It's the parable of the tenants. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants to collect them to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat Others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, Well, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left and went away. So we'll stop there. Now, one of the things that we know is that when Jesus speaks in parables, sometimes it's hard for people to understand, right? We've seen this time and again, especially as we walk through the book of Mark, sometimes even the disciples, the people that Jesus has invested the most in, don't understand the stories that Jesus is telling. And so they come to Jesus later, and they say, Jesus... I don't understand what you were saying there. Can you tell us the secret of the parable, right? But if you'll notice at the end of this particular story, who understands the parable very clearly? The teachers of the law, the chief priests, and the elders. They know immediately what this parable is about. They know it's about them. And so what's their reaction to hearing this parable? They know it's spoken against them, And so they look for a way to arrest him. But they're afraid of the crowd. So they hightail it out of there. So let's talk about the parable for a second. There's a story that Jesus tells about a man who owns a vineyard, but he doesn't live at the vineyard. He rents it out to some tenants. He lives far away. And he has the expectation that when it's time to harvest, he gets a portion. This would be a very common setup in ancient Palestine, okay? So um, whether it's actually money that is the rent or it's a portion of the harvest, this is common, okay? So it wouldn't be a weird sort of setup that Jesus is telling this whole thing. Um, The parable itself, God is the owner. I think you probably all understand that, right? God's the owner of the vineyard. The, um, The people of Israel, they are the vineyard itself. And then the tenants are the leaders of Israel. Now, the leaders of Israel have been various different types of people throughout history. At some points, they've been kings, haven't they? But right now, who are the leaders of Israel? Because they aren't kings. They haven't had kings in a long time. Right now, they're religious leaders. They're the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes. That is who is the leaders of Israel while they're under Roman authority, okay? So Jesus is telling the story and he says, the owner of the vineyard has sent like emissaries, servants to go collect the rent and they keep getting mistreated. So who has God sent over the years to the people of Israel? He sent prophets, hasn't he? He sent prophets over and over and over to bring his word to them. He sent his prophets to get them back on track, to bring them the truth of who God is. God's people were on track, they get off track. So God sends a prophet to bring them the truth to get them back on track. But time and time again, what does God's people and the kings do to the prophets? They kill them, they treat them badly, right? They, they do horrible things to them. Just like in Jesus's story about the servants being sent to the vineyard. So over and over and over, God, excuse me, the owner of the vineyard sends these servants and the tenants do terrible things to the servant. So finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my son. Because certainly if I send my son, they will respect my son. And now let's take it out of the story. God has decided to send his son to his people to get them back on track, right? To show them the way, to reunite his people with God. Certainly, they will respect my son. But what happens in the story? The tenants kill the son. And in the story Jesus is telling, why is it that the tenants kill the son? They say, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So the idea here is that these leaders, the religious leaders think that if they can kill the son, they can keep power for themselves. Something that Jesus has continued to speak against throughout the book of Mark do not follow the way of the Pharisee, right? The way of the Pharisee is this way of power, of corruption. He's speaking out against it right here. Now, this is the story. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes are very quick to understand this is a story about them, clearly. It upsets them, but they realize the crowd is behind Jesus. So... They're not gonna do anything about it. This t- whole thing teaches us some stuff about God. So what does it teach us about God? Well, it teaches us that God is generous, right? In the story, what does the owner of the vineyard do? He has this whole vineyard set up so that the vineyard can, can completely run itself. There's a watchtower, a wine press, there's the vineyard, Everything is there that you could possibly need so that you could have a successful crop. So the owner is generous. What has God created in this place? He created heaven and earth. He put everything here that we could possibly need to survive, to thrive. And what has God's people done again and again and again to everything that they have been given? They've misused, abused, forgotten it, They've chosen idols, right? They have spit in the face of everything they've been given in God's generosity. The vineyard, everything it needed, just like God had given God's people everything that they needed. God trusted the tenants with all that he had given them, okay? God trusted mankind with everything that he had given them as well. The owner went away from the vineyard, and said, look, all you got to do is give me the rent, right? I'm going to come at some point in the future when the harvest is ready and I'm going to take the harvest. I trust you on that day. God has trusted mankind with the same thing, with his creation. God is also patient, is he not? How many, how many servants in the story did God send? I, I, we can't count because in the story, it says that he sent many, right? He sent one, he sent another, he sent another, and then the story says, and he sent many more until finally he sends his son. There's a patience there, right? And then in real life, he sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to try and get his people back on track. God worked, I mean, think about even the life of King David, the man after God's own heart. How many times did King David get himself off track and yet God allowed him to get back on track? right? There's God, his patience is incredible, okay? We also learn that God is just because as generous as he is, as trusting as he is, as patient as he is, Jesus's parable here is, a, it's a little, it's a little frightening because the parable ends with these words, What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he's gonna come and he's gonna kill the tenants. And he's gonna give the vineyard to others, right? At the end of the day, God's justice will reign. God will be just. So those that have done so much harm, so much injustice, so much absolute wrong to his prophets, to his son, they will meet their justice. God's justice. Not my justice. Not mine. God's justice, right? Right ordering is the Lord's, not not Nick's. It's God's job, okay? So at the end of the day, God's justice will reign, and we learn that God is just. Now, we also learn about Jesus in this parable too, right? What do we learn about Jesus? Jesus is not a servant. God sends all these servants And then he sends another, a son. So there might be other religions that exist out there that say that Jesus is just another servant, just like all these other servants, and there's nothing different about Jesus. But there is something different about Jesus. Jesus is a son. He is the son. And the son was sent separately and differently than the servants were sent. He is the heir. The other thing that we learned, which is really interesting, because this is prior to the cross, right? We're not at the cross yet. We're in Jerusalem, but we're, at, we're not at the cross. Is that Jesus tells this parable about how the son is going to be killed, right? This is another way. How many times has Jesus communicated to the disciples up to this point, guys, I'm going to be killed, right? At least three very specific times Mark has recorded, he's telling the disciples, guys, I'm going to be killed, Right? And now he speaks in parable one more time about a story where the heir, the son, is going and the son is killed. Jesus knows the cost of what is going to happen. God has sent the son where all others have failed. He understands the cost of what he's going to do. We have said every step he takes is getting him closer and closer to the cross. Jesus understands the cost that he's about to pay. But ultimately too, Jesus understands this ultimate triumph. Because he quotes he quotes this verse about the cornerstone. If you notice in your passage, uh, verse 11 is a quote from Psalms 118. It's a quote about a cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it's done this, um, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's, it's this projection, it's this forward thought. He understands that though he's the stone that's rejected, it now becomes the cornerstone that everything else is built on. He understands as well that whatever he's about to face, by going through that, he will have the ultimate triumph. God will have the ultimate triumph in the end. And so there's something really beautiful about this parable in particular, the way Mark is remembering the life of Jesus and telling this and writing this down. Jesus has this ability to know and understand, yes, there is a cost, but God is going to triumph in the end. And that is a really cool and beautiful thing. Now let's keep reading. I'm going to go to verse 13 here because the Pharisees are going to come back. They ran off but they're gonna come back. So maybe, maybe Jesus has taken a, a few more steps through the pillars. Solomon's porch isn't a small place, so he's, he continues to walk through these beautiful pillars and some more Pharisees come back. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, "'Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity.'" Oh, they're buttering him up. "'You aren't swayed by others.'" Because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Oh, my word. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, if you remember back to when we talked about Herod, Herod had the crazy family and the tree with not enough branches, remember? Herod the Great was the guy who was around when Jesus was born and he killed a lot of babies. And then it was his children that had not enough branches in the family tree. When Herod the Great died, he divided his kingdom into three pieces and he passed them on to some of his kids. Two of his kids did pretty good ruling. And one of his kids did a terrible job at ruling. You know, two out of three is pretty good. The third kid did such a bad job, the Romans had to come in take them out. And the Romans had to take over that part of the kingdom under Roman rule and jurisdiction. The other two kingdoms, they paid a tribute to the Romans. That's just how that worked. So they gathered up their money, however they decided to do that, and they paid the Romans. The Romans took over that third part, and the way the Roman way of doing it was a tax, okay? And so the first thing that they did when they took over that third section of the kingdom was they did a census to determine who lived there so that they could you know, do a fair tax on the people. Now, when that happened, there was a guy named Judas the Galleonite, and he was against taxation, okay? And that's not unfamiliar with us. We're Americans, right? We don't like taxation either. And if you remember your history, your good old, is that like ninth grade American Revolutionary War history? What is the slogan? Let's see if we can do this. What's the slogan that we didn't, that we, we had before the Revolutionary War, taxation without? Okay, okay, good. This is important. This is not just a random American history test. This is important that you remember this. Um, that was enough people that you, that remembered that. This, this is, is going to be good. Okay. Um, this guy rose up, and his slogan was no tribute to the Romans, all right? And, and the way that he also sort of played on this with a, a largely religious population was God is in charge. God's at the top, so we only pay God. We don't pay the Romans. That was his, like, religious side of it. But no tribute to the Romans was his, his calling card. Now, of course, the Romans are the most powerful empire in the known world, and when you have somebody rise up, rile up the people, the Romans do what the Romans do. They, they killed him, all right? So it wasn't much of an issue, okay? But decades later, people still remembered no tribute to the Romans. Just like 200 and how many years later, we remember no taxation without, okay. Not hard for us to remember that, 200 and some years later, so you can understand how a few decades later, people still remember no tribute to the Romans. That's still in the hearts of the people, right? You get that? Okay. They don't like being taxed by the Romans. They don't like Roman rule, especially because the other two parts of Herod's kingdom don't have to deal with that. It's just this one part, because that one kid was not a very good ruler, okay? All right. Now, these Pharisees come to Jesus, and they think, ah, we can trick him. We can get him to answer this question one way or the other, and if he answers it one way, we got him. If we answer it the other way, we got him. And the crazy thing is, we notice this. If you have any familiarity, if this is the first time you've read any of the Gospels, fair point. This is the first time you've maybe seen this sort of dilemma that Jesus has been put in. But if you've read any of the other Gospels, you'll notice Jesus gets put into this black and white sort of dilemma all the time. The Pharisees are always trying to trap him with an A, B question, right? So, I I tried to put it up on the screen here for you. If Jesus says, go ahead and pay the tax, right? What was the reason the Pharisees ran away the last time Jesus told the mean story about them? They were afraid of the crowd, right? All right, so how do we get rid of the crowd? We get Jesus to say, pay the tax. But if he says, pay the tax, what's the thing they all remember in their heart for the last three decades? No tribute to the Romans. So he'll lose the crowd. That's going to make everybody angry because deep down they remember Judas died for us trying to make sure that we didn't have to pay our taxes. So let's get Jesus to say, pay the tax. The crowd's going to disperse and it's going to make it that much easier to get him. Now let's get him to say, or let's get him to say, don't pay the tax. If we can get Jesus to say, don't pay the tax, then, oh, the Romans will just categorize him as Judas the Galleonite. And what did they do to Judas the Gallianite? Oh yeah, they killed him. That solves our problem too, A or B. Jesus, what you gonna do, right? And so they spend the whole time just buttering him up. Oh Jesus, you're so great. You answer everything truthfully. You just don't pay attention to what anybody else says. So we know that you are just going to answer this question so good. Do you pay the tax or don't you pay the tax, Jesus? And so Jesus answers. He's like, well, just show me the coin. And he looks at the coin. He's like, okay, whose picture's on this? Caesar's picture, right? So give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. And what Jesus does in this moment is he creates an important separation that up to this point, no other rabbi had done. And that's what makes this teaching so important is he shows the people and the teachers of the law that there is, a, there is something that is of the world and there is something that is not. So give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? This has Caesar's face on it. Fine. Give it to Caesar. But you've been made in the image of God. So you give yourself to God. What did we say last week that God cares about? He cares about your heart. He cares about your spirit, right? You give that to God. Give your money to Caesar. Who cares about that? Is it not interesting that Jesus didn't reach into his pocket, pull out his wallet? and say, let me look at a dollar bill and see whose image is on it. He didn't have any money on him. He had to get someone to give him money. This is how unimportant to Jesus money is. In some ways, that alone is an example to the people who are there. Jesus is saying, showing, like I'm walking, existing, teaching, living without this stuff. You can also do that. You can be that free. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. That distinction becomes essential. And that distinction is one that does carry through time and space as well. For us here today, as we consider our response to the very things that we are asked today. You are made in the image of God You are. God is still concerned for your heart and your spirit. He still wants that. Don't give that away. That is his. Give that to him. Let's keep going. Verses 18 to to, uh, 27 here. Then the Sadducees... Who say there's no resurrection came to him with a question. And just before I say anything more, the Sadducees are not the same as Pharisees. I'll, I'll get into that in a minute, but I just want to make that clear on the front end of this. Sadducees are a very different group than the Pharisees, okay? So just know that. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, of the seven, in fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? And Jesus replied, (laughs) Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. And we'll just stop there. I think I have a slide, Randy. The next one I think says about Sadducees, maybe. If you could put that up for me. The Sadducees, it's important to understand who they are in order for us to understand why they're asking some of these questions and why Jesus responds the way he does. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are very, very different groups of people. I've explained to you guys before that there was something called the oral law And so you have the law that was given down to Moses. And then there was a group of people called the scribes who took the law because they didn't like that the law was like, you could follow the law the way you wanted. And then you could follow the law the way you wanted. And you follow the law the way you wanted. And we all kind of worked it out separately. And so the scribes then were like, let's let's write it all down. And so before they wrote it down, they just came up with it orally. And it developed into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws that people had to follow. That's what the scribes did. Eventually, it did get written down. Um, And so we had hundreds and hundreds of laws on top of the Ten Commandments and the other laws that were given to Moses. Crazy amount. The Sadducees didn't follow any of that. The Pharisees followed all of that. The Sadducees did not. So the Sadducees didn't follow the oral law. The Sadducees only followed the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, okay? They didn't believe in eternal life, and they didn't believe in a resurrection, all right? So that's what made them different. The Pharisees did. Sadducees did not. So very different groups of religious leaders. Now, in Jewish um, customs, there is this idea of sort of keeping it in the family, okay? So if... This example that they use that they give to Jesus is like this ridiculously exaggerated example of seven brothers who get married to the same person and then that person dies and then they all you know go to heaven and who's married to who kind of thing. But there is this understanding that if you know an older brother has a younger brother and the older brother dies without being able to have a child then the other younger brother's supposed to step up and help create a child. But then the child is actually... The, the older brother's child. Okay. That's the way that that whole thing worked. And the, and the whole thing is based on making sure that the land and the inheritance had an, had an heir, right? The older brother would be the one with all of the, the land and the money and that kind of thing. And if he didn't have a son to pass it on to, there's a problem. And so if the older brother died before having an heir, there's an issue. So it's the younger brother's job to kind of step up and, you know, make a child. (laughs) Um, So that's, this whole seven brother thing is like a ridiculously exaggerated example. But that's sort of the point of the question. So who's going to be the husband of this lady? And Jesus' response is kind of simple. He's like, there isn't marriage Like that's, you're missing the point. What Jesus is saying is like, what what you've done is you've taken heaven and you've sort of made heaven like earth. Like you've taken all the things you know about earth and you've shaped heaven like earth. And so he's saying, look, when, when heaven, heaven is not gonna be like earth. When it comes time for heaven, there's not gonna be things like marriage, you don't have to worry about things like eating, or drinking, or jealousy, or anger, or strife, like all of that stuff, that's, that's now stuff. That's earth stuff. That's not resurrection, heavenly stuff, right? So he's like, what he's trying to do is help them understand, you have taken the now stuff, and you're applying it to the then stuff. You can't even imagine the then stuff, right? So that's that's sort of what he's trying to to do. But then he goes into this whole living God thing. And what he's trying to do there is he's trying to tackle the Sadducees' lack of belief in resurrection. Okay? Uh, and so that's why it's helpful for you to know that the Sadducees don't believe in eternal life and resurrection. All right? So he says, Look, don't you know? And then he goes back to a story in one of the first five books of the Bible because he knows the Sadducees don't believe in anything else. So Jesus goes back to one of those early stories and he says, let's talk about the burning bush. Let's talk about Moses. He says, don't you know that God claims to be the God of Abraham and Jacob? He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And so he's directly engaging their lack of belief. And he says, you are badly mistaken. All right. So Jesus is now arguing with the Sadducees as well as the Pharisees right before this. Now, you have to go into the very next verse of the next section, and you'll see it says, One of the teachers of the law saw or came and heard them debating, and he noticed that Jesus had given them a good answer. All right. So we don't know, was this, was this, um, Were the Sadducees like, oh, whoa, no one's ever pushed back on this before? Like, were they convinced by this answer? We're not sure. What we do know is from an outside perspective, you know, you can think of it like a rap battle. Jesus is going at it with the Sadducees a little bit. And then there's an outsider, teacher of the law, and he's like, well, this is pretty good. Jesus is holding his own with them, right? So that's about the most perspective we get about how successful Jesus was in engaging the Sadducees here. But we know the teacher of the law is like, oh, huh, he gave him a pretty good answer on that, okay? So that's as much as we know. Were the Sadducees convinced or not? I don't know. It's a pretty good answer. Were the Sadducees pushed back on? Pretty, I don't think they were very often. The Sadducees were extremely strict. They, they didn't let a lot of people in their order. They're a small order, extremely conservative. So I doubt that many people push back on their beliefs. But in this case, Jesus did. And from an outside perspective, a teacher of the law felt like Jesus, Jesus gave him a pretty good time on that. So let's keep reading. One of the teachers of the law <laughs> Excuse me, I'm so sorry, I did I right in the microphone. Came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? <clears throat> the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And with all your strength. The second is this love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. I'm going to cough again, Brad. Can you cut me? Good. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but Him. To love Him, I have one in my mouth right now, but thank you. (laughs) You are right. this is, uh, this is one of our most uh, quoted, most important um, sections of verses in the Bible. It shows up in most all of the Gospels, you know. Um, experts in the law and Sadducees would have been on opposing sides. So the expert in the law would have been someone who had devoted his life to studying the things that the Sadducees had rejected. Um, Judaism tended to do two different things. and uh, and we just referenced one of them, (coughs) tends to create lots and lots and lots of rules, right? We just said hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. 628 or 613, I always get it mixed up, is how many rules there are. Uh, And so that's one way of going about it, creating lots of rules. But the other thing that Judaism tends to do and likes to do is try to boil it down to the simplest of things, all right? So this is where this guy comes up and he says, so, what's the greatest commandment? Like, give it to me straight. What's the simplest way to follow God? So Jesus is the first rabbi that we know of who puts these two things together. We don't have any other writing in any other place in history Uh, Books in the Bible, books that are not canonized in the Bible, where a teacher puts these two things together. And if we look in the Old Testament, we can see other prophets who take various commandments and try to simplify what it means to follow God. Isaiah does it, Micah does it, um, and they say they make short lists. But Jesus is the very first one to put these two things together. So what is the greatest commandment? Well, love God, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what you'll notice here, too, if you read your Bible and you look at this, these aren't Jesus' own words. He's quoting, right? I don't know, and maybe you've noticed that. Maybe you've been shown that before, but if you haven't, I want to point that out to you. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament here quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So Jesus isn't making this up on the spot. He's taking Old Testament law, law of Moses. And he's saying, this is stuff you've been given. What's the greatest commandment? Okay, the commandment you've been given already, that the greatest commandment, let me grab it from the Old Testament and bring it forward. Here you go. Love the Lord your God. Oh, and the second one, let me grab that one too. It's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, okay? These are commands that they have already been given, okay? So know that Jesus is taking commands that Jewish people have already been given. So the expert in the law then responds back to him. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I agree with you. Somebody, expert in the law, who studied the law his whole life is like, yeah, I agree with you. And you know what, Jesus? What's more than that Those two things, better, better than any sacrifice that you could ever do, right? That's better than any sacrifice you could do inside the temple, um, any burnt offerings or anything like that. And Jesus is like, man, this guy has got it. You're not far from the kingdom. You got it. And that says something, right? Because one of the things that we have seen so many times is Jesus argue with religious leaders and Pharisees. But they're not all bad. And it's something that I've tried to say, and something I've tried to point out a couple of times throughout Mark is to say, they don't all have it wrong. But there's a lot to do. And by the end of things, there's a lot that join in. But they don't all have it wrong. Here is one that Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're there, man. You're there. You got it. Love God. Love your neighbor. Way more important than you getting to the temple and doing a sacrifice or a burnt offering. You got it, man. Way to go. This is huge. And so, like, one of the things that, like, we're going to see in a second um, that he's going to talk about other teachers of the law. I want you to keep this guy in mind as we talk about other teachers of the law. Compare and contrast, okay? All right, really quick, two verses, 35 to 37. Um, they're a, little, a little weird, a little confusing. We're not going to say much about them, but yeah, we, we have to read them because they're in chapter 12, and uh, they're a part of Scripture, and so they're here for a reason. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why did the teacher of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your, your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And I'm gonna stop there in the middle of the verse, and I'll tell you why a little bit later. Why is this here? It's, it's a little bit strange. Jesus is making an argument to show that while the Messiah comes from the line of David, he's also the Lord of David. Maybe that's obvious, maybe it's not. Some people get a little confused by this and some people can pick it up really, really easily. And so what you'll notice is um, he's saying that the Messiah comes from the line of David and so you'll see he says he's the son of David, okay? That's what you know. He's the son of David. This is a common reference, a common um, trope for calling, what what do you call the Messiah? What do you call, um, everybody calls him the son of David. We've seen the the blind man who was like yelling out, son of David, son of David, heal me, right? That's the common name, okay? So the son of David is a way of saying it comes from the line of David. But what Jesus is trying to point out is just remember too, David himself calls him Lord, Okay, so he does come from the line of David, but David himself recognizes that the Messiah is Lord. Okay, so don't forget that. And this is a way for Jesus to continue to try and help the crowd understand that their understanding of the Messiah, that sword-wielding Messiah, they're going to have to grapple with that sooner or later. Okay, remember, they're stuck in that. They're stuck in that. And even though he's engaged that with his disciples really, really directly, he's got a crowd of people following him through Solomon's porch. They haven't grappled with that yet. Okay? He's going to have to help them understand. Yes, the Messiah comes through the Son of David's line. That doesn't mean he's going to be the Son of David. He's not going to be the guy carrying the sword. Even David said the Son of David is going to fall under the Lord. There's got to be room for the Lord to have the last say in what the Messiah looks like, not the son of David to have the final say in what the Messiah looks like. Verse 38. "Um, And the large crowd listened to him with delight is that last sentence, and I skipped it. And most scholars believe that that last sentence really should be in this next section because most people who are listening to him teach as he teaches about that son of David, Lord of David, That's not going to be the thing they delight in. They're going to delight in this next thing. They're going to delight in Jesus saying some pretty harsh things about teachers of the law. Okay? And that's what he's about to say next. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Randy, can you throw the slide up of the problems of the teachers of the law? Everything here that Jesus lists is the opposite of a servant. What has Jesus said over and over and over to the disciples? If you want to enter into heaven, if you want to sit at my right hand or my left hand, you have to be a servant. Those who are first will be last, right? If you want to come into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like a child. Who did he just say is going to, is very close to the kingdom of heaven? He said the teacher of the law that realized that better than the sacrifices are loving God and loving your neighbor, right? So he starts railing on big flowing robes. Why? Big flowing robes, what's the point of that? Well, the point is to draw attention to yourself. That's the point. In ancient Palestine, if you have big flowing robes on, well, you can't move very fast. You certainly can't serve very well. It's simply to draw attention to yourself. Um, There was no point other than attention. Uh, Scholars agree on that 100%. Um, You want respect that comes with the office. This is something that is even true now, here, and today. So there's students that are studying to become pastors. They want the title, they want what comes with the title, but they haven't considered the call. Is there a calling? Should they be a pastor? Is it is it just memorizing information? They just want the people to you know respect and adore them. Um, the robes of today are they the collar? Are they the? Are they the whole? Like, you come dressed to church so that you can't do the work the church needs. I mean, they take the best seats in the front where everybody can see them, rather than making sure that the people who need the seats get the seats. This is all the opposite of being a servant. Do you understand? It should be about serving others and instead it's about being served by others. Jesus goes on to say they devour widows, They we devour widows' houses. It means that they seek money where there is no money. <laughs> Continues to happen today. Continues to happen in local churches from local families today, sending letters asking for money where there is no money to be. It happens with online churches who send letters out asking and asking and asking and asking. Just five dollars. God will answer your prayer if you send five dollars, right? Or, I mean, there's lots of examples. We don't need to go into them, but it happens today, and it's a trap. Lengthy prayer is meant to convey holiness. Meant to convey big words and something. They're piousness, but it's not meant to help anybody. These are the things that Jesus is railing against. These are the things that Jesus has an issue with, a problem with. This isn't service, it's not servanthood. And this is his point. He says these are the ones that are going to be punished severely. These are the ones. This is when he curses the fig tree on his way into Jerusalem. This is, a, this is the thing. He's like, there's a tree with all the leaves and no fruit. That's the problem. You got the religious leader with the robes, getting all the front seats, wanting all the respect, yanking all the money from the people who don't have the money, doing all the lengthy public prayers. There's all the leaves on the trees and no fruit. That's the whitewashed tomb with bones underneath. These are the ones that are going to be punished most harshly. So you compare that person with the guy who comes to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? Oh, yeah, you're right. It is love God and love your neighbor, and those are more important than the sacrifices at the temple. Yeah. That's a big different picture, isn't it? Okay. Last one, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place. He's out of Solomon's colonnade now. He's come out of the pillars. He's in the opening. He is sitting down and watching the box where people put offerings in. The crowd is there with him. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Real giving is both generous and sacrificial. It's generous and sacrificial. Consider this, this is the example of, given to us by Jesus and throughout history as to what giving looks like. Now, we don't do a lot of giving sermons at Kanoi. Um, This is not a giving sermon. This is just Mark chapter 12. But this is the last part of Mark chapter 12. Giving is generous and sacrificial. That's what it should be. It doesn't matter what the amount is. It doesn't matter if the amount is small. What matters, according to Jesus, is that it was generous and sacrificial. Okay, that's what matters. It was her last two copper coins. There was other people that had given ahead of her and it was large amounts. But Jesus is saying she gave more than they gave. Because her giving was generous and sacrificial and their giving wasn't. So this is the example of giving that we've been given. And that should say a lot to us. Today in our world, we have to coax giving. People won't do without their pleasures to give to God. We would choose our pleasures over giving to God. And often we won't give unless we get something back. Right? That's that's just the way it is. The example of the widow was of somebody giving and holding nothing in reserve. And that is an example that we don't see very often. And this isn't me telling you to give everything you have with nothing in reserve, so don't hear that. What I'm saying is that there was something about her heart that we should all try and emulate. That's Jesus, God wants our heart, right? We said it last week. We have said it today. This is what matters. It's about our heart. So how do we make our hearts more like Jesus' heart, okay? There's something about the widow's heart. This is not me saying, empty your bank account by any means. But there's something about the widow's heart that allowed her to go up to the temple that day and gave everything she had for some reason or another, okay? So quick story, and then I'm going to close this out. I have a friend. uh, This is years ago, probably 10 years ago. I may have even told this story here before, but I'm going to tell it again. We were um, we were out in California and um, he came across this, we were out there for a denominational thing and, we were out, and he came across a woman who was living in her car and she had uh, two kids living in her car as well. And, you know, I don't even know how he came across her. Uh, he was just walking down the street and uh, met her, started talking to her and just learned a little bit of her story and just felt like, His heart broke for her. God broke his heart for her. He was a youth pastor at the time, didn't have much money. (laughs) He had a, he, um, like, I mean, didn't have much money at all. He had bought his ticket to get out there to the denominational conference we were at. He had a ticket to get home uh, and maybe uh, a couple hundred bucks in his bank account. And he She had two little kids, and at least one, if not both of them, were in diapers living in this car. And the car, um, I think, had at least two flat tires. And so car couldn't move, and he cashed in his plane ticket, pulled a couple hundred bucks out of his bank account, and got her a couple cases of diapers and food, fixed the two tires in her car, and got her mobile again. Did he solve all of her problems? No. Did he put her through, like, three tests to make sure that everything was on the up and up? No. Because that really wasn't his job. Like, he talked to her, prayed with her, felt like God broke his heart for her, and he wiped out everything he had to get her mobile again and get diapers on those kids. And... and. He had nothing left, couldn't even get home. So he had, he had to call his parents and be like, hey, I need a plane ticket home. You know? Like, and so there was this kind of humbling moment of having to call mom and dad and say, Can you spot me a couple hundred bucks so I can get a plane ticket home? And but there's also this really amazing moment of he felt like the Holy Spirit broke his heart and he did everything that he could to make sure that he cared for the need that was right in front of him too, right? Now, some of you might think that was really dumb. (laughs) Okay. You know, you're in your rights to think that. But he felt like that was what he was supposed to do. And in a lot of ways, it's a story that I've held on to for 10 years because his heart sure feels like her heart, doesn't it? So... Again, this is not me telling you to go into your bank account. This this is me telling you, you got to listen to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit breaks your heart. And what we want is our hearts to look like Jesus' heart in those moments, right? We want to listen to the Holy Spirit, and we want to resemble Jesus as much as possible. And so when we look at Scripture to figure out what does it look like for us to be good, faithful, generous givers... The example we're given is one that shows us giving everything. And so we give everything to God, and we might sometimes give everything to somebody else too. And again, I don't know what it looks like. But listen to the Holy Spirit. God's not going to steer you wrong. Amen?